If you have your Bible, let's go to John 4. And I want to read to you the very words of God that that woman's monologue was taken from. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, notice this, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. John the Apostle wants you to know that. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which if you write notes, you want to know is about noon. It's midday. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Again, John the Apostle wants you to know that Jesus is by himself. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now here's more background. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. Huh. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, <laughs> you have nothing to draw <coughs> water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get, or where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Yes, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, willing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come and draw water here. And Jesus said to her in verse 16, Okay, well go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father... You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. 
When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm going to stop there this morning, next Sunday, Lord willing. We're going to take it up and look at verses 27 down to 45. This morning, as we go into the Lord's table, I want to talk to you again about these conversations with Christ. And this morning, my sermon title is pretty simple. Pretty obvious, really, if your sermon title or your series title is Conversations with Christ, that at some point I was going to have a title that would say, this was a conversation that led to conversion. This was a conversation that led to conversion. Now, I don't know about you, but I wanted to just show that video. I was a little disappointed that we had the lag there, but I wanted you to feel the, the drama of it. Because I'm a dramatic person. I, I love drama. I love dramatics, all right? Some of you are smiling again like, thanks, Captain Obvious, all right, yeah, that I'm dramatic. I get it. But I, I love drama. I loved, when I was a kid, I loved being in theater. I loved acting in, in, in stuff and plays and being in musicals. I love to watch movies, gripping movies, mo movies that grab your attention, those epic movies. And I, I love those movies that that are really about the underdog. There was a movie back a few years ago called Slumdog Millionaire. It was actually based on a person in India who, who wins kind of like uh, uh, that, that, who wants to be a, a millionaire thing. And then remember that classic kids movie, Little Orphan Annie, remember Annie? You know, and, and, and she's there and it's just, she's the underdog all the time. And then what about for those of maybe that are a little older, the Bad News Beers. You remember that movie, that kids movie? And then there's those movies where we're, we're always shown contrast. You remember we're coming into Christmas soon, and pretty soon you'll see the movie Scrooge come up on your television set somewhere. Or those adventure movies, or those dramatic movies. And, and I love the way that even Hollywood puts two people against each other. Like in many movies, the rich guy who's full of pride and position, who thinks he knows everything, and yet he misses the obvious, or ends up missing out on what is most important. And then there's those movies or stories or even real life examples where we see something amazing is offered to everybody and yet witness very different responses to the exact same offer. Now I find it fascinating that art imitates life. That's very interesting. Even more I find it fascinating how Hollywood steals from the Bible. Don't think for a minute that Hollywood isn't doing this. Because all throughout your Bible, if you'll read it from Genesis to Revelation, you'll encounter underdogs. You'll see the rich versus the poor. You'll see wonderful encounters of the highly esteemed and the outcast. In fact, you'll see every type of person and how they react to God and how they react to things like authority or power or fame or hurt or need. You read about men and women as they interact with pride 
and selfishness and stubbornness. You meet people of means and people with nothing. You meet kings and princesses and daughters and sons. You meet the religious and the irreligious. You see all classes of people, genders, men and women, boys and girls, the old and the young. You meet the moral and the social standings of all and they are all represented and they all interact with each other and ultimately with God. And in John chapter 4, the writer of this gospel, John the Apostle, I think he does an absolutely brilliant job of introducing us to many types of these people. And yet, we hear from those people as we see them respond to Jesus and Jesus respond to them. We get that little secret seat where you can sit there and read their story and we're shown how Jesus both confronts them with his godness and his gentleness. And if you're like me, you find yourself and you're doing it as this onlooker, this this kind of secret observer. And just like any good book or any good movie or any good TV show, you find yourself cheering and hoping and smacking your head, even yelling, why would you do that? Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't trust him. Don't trust her. Don't trust yourself. Why wouldn't you just listen? And and then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, that's me. I see myself. I've done this. I have felt this. I've I've said this. I've reacted this way. Make... Make no mistake about it, friends. John wants you and I to see, indeed, every one of us in this room is supposed to see. If I, if I give you the sermon in a sentence, here it is in just five words. The gospel is for everyone. If you want to write something down and take it, the gospel is for everyone. You see, God sent Jesus into the world to show us God in the flesh. That's what John chapter 1, 1 to 18 is all about. And the rest that follows is that played out right up until John 20, 30 and 31 when John tells us why he wrote what he did. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Remember, we've read this many times. But these are written. This conversation with this faceless, nameless Samaritan woman was written so that you would believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now... As I read this passage, did you put yourself there? See, that's what makes a good book a great book or a good movie. Did you feel the dust and the heat when at noon in Palestine, when it was probably at plus 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and all of the sounds that would have been present as Jesus puts his back up against the side of that well, and he's thirsty, and he's tired, and then he hears those lonely footsteps of this woman coming, likely leading a few stray animals with her, and you see and you feel what this woman would have felt and sensed when she realizes, I'm not alone And how John the Apostle writes this out. Did you take note of the way he presents Jesus' humanity and his divinity? Did you notice I tried to draw them out? Those five little brackets that were there where John the Apostle inserts himself into the story to give you the background as if he's that secret writer there telling you these things. So let me just walk you through this as we come to the table of the Lord. Look in verses 1 to 6 as you have the setup up to the conversation. You see, the conversation has to be set up first, right? 
In verses 1 to 6, you get the background. Okay, Jesus has learned that the Pharisees are starting to get take note of him and his popularity and his notoriety. And now they're starting to make comparisons between John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. We read all about that in John the Baptist in the end of chapter 3. And now he's going and he's going to move along. He's going to go back down to Galilee. But to do that, he's got to go through Samaria. And he comes to this little place called Sychar. And that's where Jacob's well is. And all of these little backgrounds are that. And these, are, these things are important for a couple of reasons. If you're going to get this, you've got to understand why John, the writer of this, is telling the Asian believers of the first century what we're supposed to see. Number one is this. We need to take a lesson from Jesus about what's first importance. Because if you'll notice, again, I'm going to quote J.C. Riley says, Let it be a settled principle in our minds that the first and chief business of the church of Christ is to preach the gospel. See, Jesus is leaving one place and he's headed down to Galilee. He walks through Samaria. We find out that he's there and he's, and he's, and he's, and he's tired and all that. Because notice what it says. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel. When the gospel of Christ is faithfully and fully preached, we need not fear that the sacraments will be undervalued. Baptism and the Lord's Supper will, almost, will always be most truly reverenced in those churches where the truth as it is in Jesus is most fully taught and known. This was a challenge to me as we come to the Lord's table. See, I can't gimmick this up to make this more important to you. The best thing I can do is open the Bible and preach it to you, and then this will become important. But see, here's Jesus... In his humanity, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's had a lot of stress put on him, and all these things, he's sitting down, the disciples have gone off, maybe he feels like, I'm going to finally, I get some alone time. Again, I'm a creature of television, I, I grew up on the Looney Tunes, alright, the Looney Tune cartoon, and you remember that one, I always forget the name of the, the big bulldog and the little chihuahua that always show you, and, and the little chihuahua is always hopping around, and he's got all the energy, and the big bulldog's like, boom, 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 and the little, the little chihuahua's like, hey, hey, Mitch, hey, Mitch, how are you doing, man? And he's hopping all around him all the time, and I just think that as Jesus walked around, the 12 disciples were like 12 little chihuahuas. They were just like, hey, Jesus, and what about this? And Jesus, what about that? And how about this, Jesus? And, and finally, Jesus is alone. And he's finally, finally some quiet. Some of you moms know what that's like, right? When you get all the kids to bed, and you're like, finally. And then, all of a sudden, you're not alone. You hear these footprints. And Jesus, still though tired and thirsty, still has time. You see, well, the other thing that you need to see this is Jesus is our divine Savior, but he's also our perfect human example and substitute. See, Jesus is tired. He's hungry and thirsty, as we're going to see but as one pastor called it, he feels that divine must. Do you remember that back in chapter 3? That you must be born again and the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 4, it, the ESV says he had to travel through Samaria. See, John wants us to take note of this in a pretty simple way. Basically, John's saying, look, he had to travel through Samaria, not mainly because of geography, but because this was a divine appointment. I've chosen this particular divine appointment to shock you with the gospel. A dear friend of mine that I got to meet a couple years ago, Alistair Begg, 
noted that some have earned PhDs trying to explain why did Jesus go through Samaria? And he said very, very Scottish, like, I could have saved them tens of thousands of dollars if they just called me and told me, because I would have told them. Because I don't know if you have it or not, Jordan, to put that map up. I don't know if Steve's put that map in there. If you have that, you're not, you're shaking your head. Okay, so you don't. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Oh, here we go. There it is. Good stuff. He found it. So in, in our property, you see up here, there's Jerusalem down here, and then there's this line. Jesus decides to go through Samaria, and there you see Sychar there, right? Most Jews, when traveling, would have taken this route. They would have gone this way to the border, followed along down, missing all of that populated area, and then altered in towards Galilee and ended up where Jesus ends up down in Capernaum. So it wasn't that Jesus had to go through Samaria in the sense of this was the way you traveled. He deliberately took a route that most Jews, in fact, almost all Jews would not have taken. And this is what you know. Jesus knows that there's spiritual business that must happen there. You see, plus remember that John, the writer of this gospel, is going to give us this wonderful comparison. If you think back to John chapter 3. Because here you come to this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman who is religiously and socially and morally very different from Nicodemus in chapter 3. You couldn't have a stronger difference. And so we move from the setup to the conversation, secondly, to the shock of the conversation. Now we move to the shock of the conversation. And you see that in verses 7 and 10. Because notice, a woman from Samaria came to draw wet water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then John the Apostle tells you why would Jesus do that, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus is sitting there alone, he's tired, he's dusty, he's thirsty, and he looks at this woman and he says, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? And John says, here's why this, she was shocked. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Huh. Friends, it really is hard. I spoke with Daniel and Steve early this week. <coughs> for me to help you understand, in a 21st century Western context, how shocked this woman is that Jesus spoke to her. You see, you and I just don't get it. Nicodemus in chapter 3 is a Pharisee. And to be honest, we're conditioned to think poorly of Pharisees because we've heard countless sermons and all these types of things. But not in Jesus' day, not in the first century. Pharisees were admired. They were looked up to. It was a wonderful thing if someone came to you and said to you, Mom, Dad, your son will now be a Pharisee. That was something you bragged about. That was something you told other parents about. What does your son do? Oh, my son is a Pharisee. He, he follows this person or he was taught by that person. This was something you bragged about. You were looked up to. <laughs> then there is our faceless, nameless woman in chapter 4. And again, it's hard for me to help you understand how dramatic it is because while we will all try to put a face or a thought to the woman at the well, you got to go deeper. You, you, you have to at least try to feel the tension. And tragically, some of the things we've heard about in the Middle East, of the hatred between Israel and the Palestinians, the genocide that you have heard about in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and those in, in Iraq between the Shiites 
and, and, and so on and, and so forth, and the different sects of religion, the things we've heard about the racial tensions of the U.S. I recently watched this movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Hidden Figures. Anybody see that movie? The Hidden Figures? Some of you have. Uh, that was a wonderful movie about uh, black women in the United States that were part of the early NASA space program. If you haven't seen it, it is well worth watching. But I, can't, I find it difficult to watch these things because when I'm watching it, because these women had to go to a different building to use the bathroom, they literally had signs that said, Colored Bathroom. In fact, this one woman who was a massive genius of mathematics, she was a walking, talking computer, wasn't even allowed to drink from the same coffee pot. There was a coffee pot marked colored coffee, which is a bit ironic when you think about it. But I, I just find myself, when I watch movies, I just get angry. I really find it hard to believe I'm embarrassed. I find it anger, this, this really pit in my stomach that this was how other humans treated other humans and that that was normal in the 50s and 60s and 70s of America. It shocks me. And this should shock you. The tension between Jews and Samaritans. And there's nothing I can really point to in our culture to make you feel the hatred and the shame and the competition and the arrogance. But here's Jesus. A Jewish man speaking to an unveiled Samaritan woman who is of less than moral repute. And by simply saying, would you give me a drink, just like you saw in the video, if he so much as touches the drinking vessel that this woman had touched, according to Jewish law, it would make Jesus unclean. And yet what I love about the New Testament is Jesus is the only human that ever lived who could touch a sinner and not become unclean, but take the unclean and make them clean. That should excite you. J.M. Boyce exquisitely puts it like this. It is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, and the simple Samaritan woman. Let me give you an example. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She didn't belong to any religious party. He was a politician. She didn't have status whatsoever. She couldn't even testify in court. She was considered a positional liar. He was a scholar. She's uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She's nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She who had no reputation had to come at noon. Nicodemus came seeking. But this woman is sought out by Jesus. This great contrast. And yet, the point of the stories is that both the man and the woman needed the gospel and were welcome to it. This is the main point of my sermon. It's the main point of this passage. If Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one can rise so high as to be above salvation, then the woman is an example of the truth that none can seek so low that they can't have salvation. But look at how Jesus does it. Look back at our passage. He says... Here you go. Ready? Here's his full sermon. <clears throat> Give me a drink. There's the full interaction. Give me a drink. But you, you can't appreciate the shock and, and how this disarmed her. You see, Jesus begins from a posture of need, not authority. He doesn't come and say, I'm better than you. He doesn't, and he doesn't say it like, 
Hey, dog, give me a drink. He says, could, could you give me a drink? In fact, you'll notice in Scripture, huh, the religious seem to give Jesus titles and, and they sweet talk him. Do you remember when Nicodemus comes under the cover of night and he says, good master or, or rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the things that you do. But you'll notice that when common men or women come to Jesus, they just come to him as savior. They just like, who are you and I need you? Jesus asks a favor from a woman who's alone, who's morally bankrupt. She's cast out and barely tolerated by her own. And Jesus often looked and even called, who is, who is called a Jewish rabbi, is here now asking this woman for help. Can you imagine her shock? You got to really taste the barriers. She's a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. And this is because of what happened in 2 Kings 17.24. If you want to take notes and you want to put the context, go back and read 2 Kings. This Assyrian king, he conquers the northern tribes of Israel. But what he does, he deports most of them. And then he brings in a whole bunch of pagan Gentiles. And what happens is the leftover Jews intermarried and adopted a weird kind of blended religion and they became ethnically hated because they were like half-breeds. And so in Jesus' day, rabbis would say this, he that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like one that eats the flesh of swine. If you understand how Jews can't touch pork or shellfish. But not only that, she's a woman. Now, are you ready for this, ladies? Here's what it was like to be a woman in the first century, even Jewish. Because the rabbis would pray this. This is a documented prayer of the rabbis. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. There you go. That gives you the warm and fuzzies, doesn't it? Is it any wonder that women were so drawn to Jesus in the early church? And then notice that she comes alone at noon. That's not normal. Because this is a woman, a Samaritan woman, and she's a morally ostracized woman. Now, I don't know because this is the one thing I do know about Western culture. I go out to eat with three or four couples. So now there's four guys and there's four girls. And then one of the women at the table says, oh, I must go to the powder room. Then all of a sudden, like a contagious disease, all four women have to go to the, to the powder room. They all do it together in mass. Or if you're sitting at a home or you're doing, having a barbecue and something, and then one of the women says, well, I must go have a coffee. Then everybody needs to go and in mass go to the kitchen and have said coffee. Men don't do that. I have never in my life said to a dude, I got to pee. And the other says, you know what? So do I. Let's go together. Right? Like that never happened. Does a job. We've never done that, right? Yeah. You know, but did you ever notice this woman, normally women would have gone to the well early in the morning or in the evening because that's when it was cool. And they would have done it together. We see, this is a woman who's cast out even from her own. She's got a moral reputation. She's there, and she's all by herself in the middle of the day, the hottest time to actually try and do this kind of manual labor. And as cruel as men can be to women, I've seen women hurt each other in such spiteful ways. But here's Jesus, kind <coughs> gentle, and even at first glance, maybe even overlooking. And it makes perfect sense. Remember back in John chapter 3, verse 17, when, when we're told that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to bring salvation. 
He didn't even come to admonish this woman. He's simply here. He is humanly thirsty and hungry. He's likely needing rest. He's hot. He's wore out. But still and always on mission. He's still always and always on mission. And so we ask for her help. And again, I love how one commentator says, simple as the request may seem, it opened the door to a spiritual conversation. And no wonder her shocked response. Again, look at verse 9 and what she says. I find this fascinating. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Samaria, Which leads, thirdly, to the confusion of the conversation. Now we're into the confusion. So, verse 10, look at what happens. Jesus answered to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Now there's confusion about the center in. Because He simply makes the profound point that where she now thinks she's in the position to meet his need, Jesus is letting her know that indeed he will be the one meeting her need. <laughs> he, is, he is doing this by, he does this by offering her what she doesn't even realize what she needs. Notice what he says. If you knew the gift of God, she doesn't even realize that. You see, isn't it funny? She's got a longing. She's got unmet needs. She's tried to fulfill these needs in all kinds of ways as we discover. And Jesus offers her what she's been looking for but not seen and what she needs but hasn't realized. And the proof is in her response in verse 11. Look at what she says. This is hilarious. The woman goes from how is it that you a Jew to sir, you have nothing to draw with and the water well is deep. What are you going to, how, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's confused. And again, Jesus doesn't address what she says. Have you ever noticed that? In this passage, she says, how are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Never answers that question. Never gets into the ethnic debate. Then she says, how are you going to drink water? Have you got nothing to do it with? And don't you know that this is Jacob's well and you should be impressed? There's a plaque over here and we dedicate it. It's like one of our tourist spots for those who come. Jesus never deals with it. He simply ignores it. He doesn't address what she says, but rather points out that what he offers is life-changing for eternity. You see what he's doing? He's making this dear, hurting, failing lady see that she doesn't even realize what her need is and how amazing what Jesus is going to offer is. And so now we go from the confusion of the conversation. Next comes the wrong focus of the conversation. All right, see this? See, Jesus talks a lot about thirst and never thirsting, but he never reveals himself. He never says to her, Honey, if you knew who I was, and if you knew that I was Jesus come in the flesh, and if you knew that I've turned water into wine, if you knew that I could make the living, the, the dead live alive, and if you knew this, and I am the prophet, and I am the... He just keeps saying, If you knew what this was, and if you knew what that was, he never ever reveals who he is. And do you ever wonder why Jesus does this? Because the answer is back in the end of John chapter 2. You remember what it says? Look at John chapter 2 at the very end. Look at what... John tells us why Jesus didn't do this stuff. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he knew himself what was in man. So when she says, how are you going to do this? Jesus doesn't say, now step back and watch the water uh, defy gravity and just start bubbling out of the well. He doesn't do that. 
He doesn't betray that. He doesn't get caught up in the focus, the wrong focus. This nameless lady is delusional, she's defensive, and she's deflective. Right? Just like Nicodemus was, by the way. Right? Verily, verily, I say to you, you must be born again. What? What? That doesn't make any sense. Can we have a, a scientific discussion of this? And here now this woman is, how can you give me this magic drinking water? You don't even have anything to draw with. Remember, you started this conversation with, can I have something to drink? But notice what Jesus does. Because look at verse 13 and 15. When, she said, when Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of what water welling up until we learn a life. Now notice what the woman does, right? Well, sure, give me this water. Now, is she thinking spiritual or physical? She's still thinking physical, isn't she? Because she says, give me this water. I'll never be thirsty again. I'll never have to come out here and draw water. She's simply thinking in terms of, you're going to make my life easier. I'm going to have an easier life. But now, look at how Jesus beautifully cuts to the heart of the matter in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Dun, dun, dun. If this was a television show, it would go right to commercial, wouldn't it? To make you all hanging. So you'd have to come back. But to notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He didn't come at her in some sort of, I'm going to win your theological argument. But he also doesn't affirm her. You see, Jesus doesn't excuse her sin, but he doesn't rub condemnation in her face. He lovingly confronts her with the fact that she's looking for help and satisfaction and happiness in all the wrong places. In fact, he's there to show her that he's the savior of sinners and she needs him in our life. So would you now let verse 17 fall on your ears and put yourself there. If someone, if you are shameful, if you've been shamed your whole life, if everything you have touched has turned to rust, if you've gone through five husbands and now you're shacked up with a sixth guy and you're so morally bankrupt that you can't even go to the well and get one girlfriend to come with you for help, what kind of pain? And can you feel it when she says to him, I have no husband. What's the worst thing you've ever done? And then you got caught. And there was no way to make excuses. Remember the first time I ever tried a cigarette? It's the classic story. I was out in the backyard with some buddies and they, one guy somehow got a pack of cigarettes stolen from his dad and he came and he gave us all one and he lit it up and I near died that day but my father could smell smoke. So he comes down the backyard around the shed where we're all hiding. Of course, my buddies, who were my buddies, were no longer my buddies as they all just scattered. And I didn't know what to do, so the first thing I did was put the cigarette behind my back, like this. And so Dad says, what are you doing? Nothing, as a trail of smoke is going up behind my head, right? Are you smoking cigarettes? No. 
I, I don't know if I should tell you what my father said to me that day, because my dad is an introvert, but he has a wicked sense of humor. So dad says to me, well, is that a cigarette behind your back, or did you just fart really bad? <laughs> and there was nothing I could do. I was caught red-handed. And all I could do was stand there, caught. Oh, I said that word for two young boys in the room, didn't I? Oops, sorry guys. Ah, I'm now the coolest pastor in the world, Ryan and Andrew. They'll, they'll talk to me all the time now. She stands there and she says, I have no husband. Remember our video? No condemnation. Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I want you to notice something else, church, by the way. You notice that Jesus doesn't make her rehearse her life and her failures. When she says, I have no husband, you notice that Jesus doesn't say, Well, now tell me about that. He doesn't say, like, So how many husbands have you had? And how did, they all, how did you end up in divorce? Tell me all the things that you did. He doesn't make her relive her nightmare. He doesn't make her rehearse it as some weird, morbid, religious authority thing. He simply tells her, I know what your life is like. Remember our video? He loves her and knows her. Look at verse 19 and what she says. The man said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He went from a Jew. Who are you, a Jew? to someone who can make her life easier, to now a prophet. But we're still not quite there. She knows she's got a profound issue. She is now fully aware of her real need. And maybe for the first time in her life, she feels true guilt, not shame. You see, this woman had felt and carried shame for a long time. Make no mistake about it. But biblical guilt is something different. It's the realization that I'm not right with God and I should be and maybe I can be. And you know what? I want to be. She knows that something's wrong, but she still doesn't know how to deal with it. And so now look at the diversion of the conversation. The diversion of the conversation. In verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, which was Mount Gerizim. Okay? And she says, our, 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 our people worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, which is where Mount Ebal was, E-B-A-L, all right? Which would later become where the temple was built. And so she goes into this whole give and take, and our fathers worshipped on this, and you say in Jerusalem, and all these types of things. And this is the first and only time that Jesus ever deals with what she actually says. Now all this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 27. All right, and now Ebal, we're told that when, when and sorry, in Deuteronomy 28, you get Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and half settled on one, half the tribe settled on one mountain, and the other half settled on the other, on the other mountain, and God gives his series of blessings and cursings. But in Deuteronomy 7, God settles the battle of where the temple should be built, because it says, on Mount Ebal, you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. But because of what happened in 2 Kings... The Samaritans had changed the verse. In fact, the Samaritans had taken the Old Testament and actually changed the Pentateuch, the Deuteronomy, to say on Mount Gerizim you should do this. And we've all done this, don't we? We've all done this. But notice something else. Because maybe it wasn't just that she was trying to divert the conversation. Maybe this woman was also trying to say, I'm guilty, but I don't know where to turn. 
At first, she's shocked at this Jew who, make no mistake about it, she despised him as much as the Jews despised the Samaritans. And so she goes from despised shock to selfish curiosity. Listen, if you can make my life easier, give me this magic drink so I don't have to come here anymore. And then she starts spiritual attempts to identifying. And for that first time in her life, she senses her guilt and she realized that she's been playing both the victim card all the while putting her desires and her perceived needs and her giving up ahead of everything else, much less God. And don't we all do this? Think of all the religions and attempts to deal with shame and guilt. How, how many of you have heard about karma? In fact... I heard this coming out of Walmart yesterday. I heard a group of ladies talking, young ladies, and this lady had paid for something that she was supposed to pay for. They were having a discussion about how one of them had gotten through the line and this clerk didn't make her pay for it and the other girl had to make her pay for it. And here's the word she said, I'm just too good. I have to do that. That was the full total of her religion. I'm such a good person. I got to pay for this. She actually equated paying for something that wasn't hers as the sum total of the fact that she's a good person. And that would have been grounds for her to be right in the scope of karma and eternity. Don't we do this all the time? But look at what Jesus does in verses 24, 21 to 24. He says, woman, I love this. And this wasn't like woman. He wasn't, he wasn't yelling. He was just going, oh, daughter, oh, oh, woman. Stop trying to put your rightness in God in terms of how do I or what do I? Do I, am I supposed to worship here or do I worship here? What do I do to get rid of this guilt and shame? What do I do? And Jesus rather says, I have come to you for you and I love you. That's a great gospel, isn't it? It's John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave you see, this is a religion by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. He's not basically saying, I win. The Jews are the ethnically pure ones. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, the word of God has come through Mount Ebal where that is. And spirit and truth is not a declaration, a declaration of how but who. See, the only people that can worship God are those who come through Jesus the Messiah. And so then we get the conversation that becomes the conversion. Or the conversion because of the conversation in verse 25 and 26. It takes us home. Because look at what she says. I, I know a guy. I've heard about a guy somewhere in my childhood. Somewhere as I've read. Someone told me that Messiah was coming. And when Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. And she, she's got that desperation and that hope and that wonder. And this, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus says it so painfully. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus pointed to himself. So you go from the setup to the shock, from confusion to misfocus, from diversion <coughs> to conversion. Do you see Jesus? How humble and gentle and kind he is. He didn't come condemning, but he didn't let sin slide. He didn't demand she clean herself up, but rather said, stop trying to make yourself worthy. He didn't debate religion or theology, but rather pointed out her true need. He offered himself to her. To be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. Hmm. Next week, 
You'll see how this happens. Because look at verse 29. When she goes back home and she says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She still doesn't even have her theology accurate yet. But she does know, I met someone who acts just like Messiah. And we'll see how that affects it next week. As we come to the table of the Lord, here's my question. Or here's my application. Number one, Jesus knows who we are and how we feel. Church, listen. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's the friend of sinners. He knew what this woman was all about. Next Sunday, I'm going to walk you through the other applications. But you remember that old hymn that says, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. He is the great human substitute. He knows just how you feel. He knows your weaknesses, your struggles. He knows the effect of a cursed creation. He knows your fears and your hunger and your thirst and your desperation. He knows your rejection. He knows your shame. And in all these areas, he was perfect. He lived the life that we know we should live. We wish we could live. We long to live, but no, we can't. And it's the vicious reality that we all know too well. And yet right here, right now, you and me each struggle with the degree to which we will admit it. But listen to the words of Peter. <coughs> For to this you have been called because Christ also <laughs> suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you, you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I love these words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. To be known is to be loved. And to be loved is to be known. And that is the table of the Lord.